Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL. New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll get a status report on the economy, uh, the long-term fiscal outlook, the debt limit, and the challenges of monetary policy in the post-pandemic environment. Our guest is Peter Fisher, Senior Fellow at the Center for Business, Government, and Society at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth, where he also serves as a clinical professor. From 2001 to 2003, Fisher served as Undersecretary of the U.S. Treasury for Domestic Finance, and from 1985 to 2001, he worked at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, uh, concluding his service there as an executive vice president and manager of the Federal Reserve System Open Market Account. He received a JD degree from Harvard Law School in 1985 and a BA in history from Harvard in 1980. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman joins the conversation. Peter and Tori, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks, nice to be here. Uh, Peter, there's uh, so much that Tori and I want to discuss with you. I really don't know where to start. Um, but since you teach a course on um, the arrhythmia of finance, I thought it'd be kind of interesting to look at the arrhythmia of the federal government's finances and see if some of the concepts that you uh, teach in that course are applicable. I mean, you know, we talk all the time on this program about a long-term policy that's unsustainable. Uh, we have some near-term concerns about things that need to be done relative to the pandemic and the economy. So there are a lot of things that go into the federal budget. Planning isn't necessarily one of them. But uh, just from your perspective, what, what is the arrhythmia of, of the federal government's finances and the, and the risks? Uh, let me, that's a great question. That's great fun. Let me come at that two ways. First, yes. Um, my course, The Arrhythmia of Finance, is really about balance sheets and risk and trying to have students learn what it means to think in terms of balance sheets. That's what finance is really about. You always have something you're long, your assets, and something you're short, your liabilities that you have to do. And it's also about the idea of risk. But risk also involves thinking about positive and negative values at the same time. And, and, um, and we, we have to, our minds have to struggle with that. So the federal government is long lots of things. It has lots of assets that can tax the American people. The American economy is a big, beautiful uh, thing. Um, and it has lots of things it has to do, obligations it's taken on. Um, so if we don't understand it in those terms and we don't understand how that's likely to pass through time, we're really not understanding what's happening. Now, when I was undersecretary of the treasury a long time ago, uh, 20 years ago, right after 9-11, I guess about eight, 19 years ago, I gave a speech in which I compared the federal government to a gigantic insurance company with a sideline in Homeland Security and National Defense. 
Um, and I just I said that it's it's actually an insurance company that does its accounting on a cash basis, uh, accruing uh, income and expenses just as things go in and out the door. And an insurance company, which does its accounting on a cash basis, is not really an insurance company at all. It's an accident waiting to happen. <laughs> now, a lot of friends uh, who'd been in the prior administration, the Clinton administration, wondered when I would lose my job. Because here was the Undersecretary of the Treasury saying, you know, we got a, we got a problem. Um, this isn't going to work in the long run. Um, and I was worried about a national debt at, what, three or four trillion? Which is a rounding. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now. yeah. So in, we, do that, we do that in one year now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so maybe it didn't come home to haunt us as quickly as we could. But as we know now from the recent Social Security and, uh, trustees report, it's coming sooner than a lot of people are ready for. That the chickens are going to come home to roost on cash accounting for a big insurance company for paying for Americans' retirement. And that's really how I want people to think about the problem of we face with the federal government's finances. Let me stop there. I hope, I hope that was helpful. It's a mouthful, but um, it's, it's, it's painful to think about an insurance company that doesn't really have any reserves. Yeah, and the, uh, I mean, I think that the, um, uh, the risks that I see I mean, I mean, there's a the, the, explicitly we've got a lot of risk there. Particularly, you know, doing the cash basis is one risk itself. But I mean, there are a lot of obligations that uh, are you know latent liabilities that aren't necessarily accounted for in all of that. Yeah, you know, the federal government still produces an accrual accounting report, which is buried and no one pays any attention to it. Um, but the Treasury was obligated to do that at some point, and it's gotten hidden further and further on the websites of the Department of the Treasury, um, and it's hard to find. Um, but we tried to take it seriously when I was at the Treasury, and I haven't looked at the most recent report, I'll confess. Um, but we, the federal government's taken on a lot. Um, the late Marty Feldstein uh, reminded me that most Americans will only have Social Security for their retirement. Most Americans by headcount won't have any private savings or private pension plan. They're gonna rely on social security. So the political class is gonna run up against the problem of do they really wanna cut 20, what is it 22% that would have to be cut if they don't stabilize social security's finances from the income of the majority of Americans, what, Amer what they're expecting. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a shame Congress hasn't turned their attention to that. I think they're going to over the next five or 10 years, because it's hard to imagine we're just going to let the majority of Americans um, take a big hit on their uh, income uh, in retirement, what they have to support themselves. I want to open up a big can of worms here and then invite Tori to jump in as well. But <clears throat> I mean, with all of this that we've described, the question comes up, did deficits still matter? Now, when you were in the Treasury Department, there didn't seem to be any question about that. I mean, I recall from those days, there were a lot of disagreements about fiscal policy, but you didn't have a lot of people running around saying deficits don't matter. Certainly, there were some that would uh, articulate that, but the deficits have become so big uh, for various reasons, not, not just because of COVID relief that you do have a growing 
voice in uh, in 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 Washington that, that deficits don't matter. So, uh, wh wh why should we still worry about deficits? Well, I'd like people to think in two different time horizons, um, and it's hard um, to think in very long horizons uh, and and then to do the sort of mental time travel back and forth. Um, so. If interest rates are higher, we'll find uh, it hard, harder to finance these, uh, these deficits. And there's a school of thought that says, uh, well, interest rates are low and it's likely to stay that way. So why, why worry? And I think there was a lovely piece of work done by um, Joe Stiglitz and Bob Rubin and Peter Orzag that published about a year ago, which they said, that's the wrong way to think about it. Uh, interest rates are low and it's been surprising us. And we shouldn't draw the inference that that means they'll always be low we should draw the inference that we're bad at predicting interest rates. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore we have to account for that when we think about what we're doing. Um, and I thought that, that that's, a, I love that way of thinking about it. Um, and I think that's an important uh, caveat or, or sort of little footnote to drop down for people who says, well, we don't have to worry about the deficits because interest rates are low, so who cares? Mm -hmm. But the longer time horizon I think really matters, which is, um, we're borrowing from ourselves in the future indefinitely is kind of an Achilles heel of democracy. We shouldn't be letting the current generation burden future generations so we can live a little better. I think that's, that's, that's not what we really mean by democracy. And so the states, I've come in my old age, my, my impending dotage, to have much more respect for those states that are really tough on borrowing. Um, and what it's done is force those states here uh, to, to have capital budgets, whether they admit it or not, that there's some sort of long-term investments you make in infrastructure in your state. And that's okay to borrow for that because you're getting a long run return. But we shouldn't be borrowing against the future to support current consumption, just ad infinitum. Now, we wanna do that countercyclically when we have a recession, when we have a pandemic, we wanna do a little of that, but to sort of do it on an open-ended basis that it doesn't matter that we burden future generations so we live better today and they'll pay it off. I think, I think that's a real failure of democracy. And I think the, the people who say deficits don't matter just don't wanna confront that kind of horizon and that kind of dilemma. I think the unfortunate thing about that though is they've kind of got evidence on their side. I mean, this is sort of the, the debate that I faced in, in 2017 working for a Republican member of the Senate and, and not being really enthused about spending one and a half to $2 trillion uh, in, in deficit finance tax cuts. Um, you, you make the argument that I learned in, in Econ 101 is that when the government spends massively, interest rates rise and crowds out private domestic investment. Um, and making that argument in 2017 and trying to convince some of the, 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 the people that I spoke with then that you know, maybe we shouldn't be doing this, um, they all point to the fact that, hey, you know, we, we've doubled or tripled our debt in the last 10 years, and there hasn't been any kind of movement in interest rates whatsoever, that somehow we're special. Um, and so I, I, you know, again, it's, it's hard to prove a counterfactual. So I, you know, we, we, you know, in theory, we, we know that, that, that massive debts either have to be repaid or they cause higher interest rates in the, in the future, but, but we're not seeing it. And I'm wondering if, if you, how do you, how do you respond to people when they say, okay, but 
you know, we haven't seen this rise in interest rates. You know, is the United States special in some way? Um, you know, how is it that we've been able to defy gravity? Um, well, uh, when the central bank makes money free and plentiful, it's very hard for markets to price anything. And I, I, I think it's, um, it's just too easy to say, oh, well, see, there's no problem. Well, the Fed is making money free and plentiful. And it corrupts the system. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get a risk premium. When I was both at the Treasury 20 years ago and over the next decade, I'd get questions all the time from people in the national security uh, side of the government saying, why don't we, why aren't markets more upset about all these national security risks? And I'd say, because money's free. It's hard to get a risk premium when money's free. Um, so I, I, if you look back at the 1970s, there was a long period of time, and it's relevant for today, in which bond yields were below the level of inflation. Um, and that's because the bond market is responding to the Fed. Now, the Fed responds to the bond market. It goes back and forth both ways. Mm -hmm. But we have the same issue now. Inflation's above 5%. Bond yields are all way below that. So we could say the treasury market's underwater. And um, we have a central bank who is very comfortable with doing this. Now, I, I, I don't predict the future, but I try to understand the past. And the biggest mistake the Fed made in the late 1960s and 1970s was not to notice that when inflation rises and the Fed holds nominal interest rates flat, real interest rates have fallen and we've just experienced an easing of monetary policy when real rates fall. That's stimulating the economy. That's what the Fed's doing now and they're claiming it to be a virtue. Mm -hmm. They're saying inflation's rising, don't worry, it's temporary but we wouldn't dream of raising rates to try to catch up with it. Well, that was what Chairman Volcker and Chairman Greenspan learned to do. You can't sit still then. You have to raise nominal rates to make sure you're not easing policy further while inflation is accelerating. And this Fed has turned this into a virtue by linking their average inflation targeting mantra, which is in principle okay, but they've linked it to extended forward guidance. So they're pre-committing themselves to do what we learned in the 1970s was irresponsible, to allow real interest rates to fall while inflation is rising. And they're hoping to be lucky and get away with it. And maybe they will, and maybe they won't. But I try to teach my students, we don't get to judge the quality of decision-making by the outcome. That doesn't leave room for the role of chance and all sorts of other factors. And the late Thomas Schelling of Harvard, uh, Nobel laureate, taught us that in various ways. And that's and so I don't think the Fed's going to be that lucky, um, and that they're going to have to play catch up. But maybe they will be. But that doesn't mean it's wise for them to do this. Okay, so I hope so that's that leads a partial answer to mm -hmm. why are we here? Right. So that leads me to two questions, and I'm struggling to figure out which one to ask first. Um, so again, we're talking about the Federal Reserve and lots been written about their efforts to keep interest rates low and, and finance emergency borrowing during the, the crisis, both now and, and with the, the Great Recession. We know that that's 
strategy is not sustainable uh, in the long run and that the Fed is, at least nominally in their notes, looking for an off-ramp, but trying to exit quantitative easing without crashing the economy is tricky. So do you think that the Fed is going to be able to execute this sort of desired soft landing? Do you, do you think they're cognizant enough or, or uncertain? Um, well, uh, I think it's going to be hard because the Fed is actually for almost 15 years now, uh, or at least a dozen, um, adopted a policy of pushing up asset prices as their method of stimulating the economy. Their measure of how they're doing is, they call it financial conditions. And they're not speaking in generalities, they're looking at indices that are produced on Wall Street and by others of financial conditions. And these are almost uniformly all asset prices and volatility. And they say, Financial conditions are easy when asset prices are rising and volatility is low. So the Fed has actually been targeting pumping up asset prices and um, low volatility. That's, that's been their modus operandi. I'm mostly worried that they won't have a way to explain policy when they need to tighten. Mm -hmm. It's not going to work politically for them to say, well, I'm here to destroy asset prices and drive them lower. And I'm here to push volatility up. Now, the fact that those things tended to correlate a little bit with economic growth um, uh, shouldn't lead one to think you should target them. Um, so I think the Fed is both without a way to describe their policy if they have to shift gears, and they're going to find it very difficult because they don't want to drive asset prices lower. Now, in 1994, 95, the only soft landing the Fed has ever engineered in its history was pulled off by Alan Greenspan by raising interest rates a lot and seeing tremendous volatility and changes in asset prices. And it's a really pretty simple equation. Are you trying to st stabilize asset prices or the real economy? And you can't kind of do both. And so if asset prices are the shock absorbers by which you're trying to pump up you know, modulate the growth rate of the economy, you have to sort of accept that financial asset prices are the shock absorber. And I think the Fed's going to not know how to explain its policy if it has to shift gears. So I think it's going to be very difficult for the Fed to do this. Um, uh, but I, it's likely they're going to have to confront this dilemma. Okay. So that brings me to the second question, which is, there's been a lot of discussion about inflation this summer and whether the debate debate's been around whether these price increases we're, we're experiencing are temporary versus permanent, whether they're the result of demand push or supply side shocks. Uh, yesterday, I read an article that contained a word that I had not used or seen since I learned about it in college, and it literally sent shivers down my spine, and that was stagflation, basically a period of of, of weak economic growth combined with persistently high inflation. The, the, the weak economic growth argument you could make in that you know, the Delta variant has sort of slowed our, our emergence uh, from the, the COVID-induced recession. Uh, you've still got some supply shocks, both just in terms of inputs to production, but also you've got uh, higher wages, which you know, wages tend to be sticky. We don't see wages floating back down again. So you, you've, you've got uh, 
uh, you know, inflation factors, but also uh, slower economic growth. So I guess my question is, is, do you think Americans should be concerned about stagflation? Should they be concerned just about generic inflation? Or should they be just concerned not really about anything at all? Because most of this is just temporary. And once we all get vaccinated, things will be fine. <laughs> Oh, well, that's a, wow. That's Peter, more Peter yes. the, but we're, we're, we're about at the end of our first segment here. So I'm going to pull. Yeah, I, I get a break. Hey, gonna pull, I, I know you can't answer that in 30 seconds or 20 seconds, okay. and you shouldn't even try. So I'm going to leave a cliffhanger for our audience here. Is stagflation coming? This is Bob Bixby. You're listening to Facing the Future. We'll be right back talking with Peter Fisher at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Peter Fisher. He's a professor at the Tech School of Business at Dartmouth, a former undersecretary of uh, the Treasury Department and uh, a, a Federal Reserve uh, official as well. And we're talking about the economy. We're talking about uh, the um, monetary policy, and uh, we'll be talking about the debt limit. And when we left off, Tory had asked a, a very intriguing question, alarming question, about whether we're seeing a return to something called stagflation. So let's uh, let's now, after the cliffhanger question, get uh, to uh, Peter for an answer. Uh, well, thank you, thank you both, thank you for that terrific question, Tori. Let me try to unpack it and uh, follow up if I miss something. First, I want to go back to the 1970s, and I wish I could remember who wrote this wonderful paper about 15 years ago. That stagflation is not really that complicated. Why it happened. We had two recessions back to back with a very short period of time between them um, with a lot of monetary stimulus pumping through the system. And so the unemployment rate hadn't recovered in between those two recessions, but we were getting an acceleration of inflation in the stimulus between them. And that's how, so it's, it's just, it, it's, it's a simpler way to think about just some leads and lags that from a prior recession and a response by the Fed, we, we got, uh, the unemployment rate hadn't come down all that far. And yet, while the Fed eased, we got inflation to accelerate. So in the next recession, unemployment was starting from a high level, and the Fed was also fighting inflation. But the general principle there is we don't always get the leads and lags we want. We don't always get the constellations of things we want. And when I think of your question for today, I think, oh, the Fed might not have the privilege of waiting to control inflation. Uh, when the, the unemployment rate they want or the asset price constellation they want. They might have to do something about inflation and rein it in before they feel they've reached their employment target um, or before or, or whether it makes them uncomfortable about asset prices. So um, we don't always get the constellation that we want that gives us something optimal. We may get suboptimal. <laughs> and I think that that's what the Fed is, is facing here. Um, I, I think um, uh, Mike Bordeaux at Rutgers and uh, his colleague and his friend Mickey Levy and my friend uh, months ago had a really neat observation. If you think 
the monetary and fiscal stimulus pumping through the economy is likely to be transitory, then it would make sense for you to think the inflationary impulse will be transitory. But if you think the fiscal and monetary stimulus will be enduring and will not be transitory, it wouldn't make much sense to think the inflationary impulse will be transitory. So the monetary impulse is still coursing through the system. And as I mentioned in the earlier segment, the Fed by its inaction is allowing real interest rates to fall, which is creating more monetary stimulus. And we're now sitting here wondering if Congress is gonna put through a $3.5 trillion uh, budget. So it looks like the stimulus, fiscal and monetary, is gonna be enduring. So it wouldn't make much sense to think the inflationary impulse will be transitory. Now let's remember what we've just gone through in 10 months. Originally, transitory meant a couple of months. Then transitory meant, oh, well, just base effects from the period of time since COVID. And now it means, well, a little longer, but you know, it's really just gonna be transitory. Um, so we've had an elastic concept of what transitory means. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know what's going to happen with inflation. I, I'm, not, I'm not holding my breath for a 1970s uh, style double digit inflation. Um, but I, I don't see why it, it goes back to 1.5% all by itself. That seems unlikely. Mm -hmm. And I think it's curious to me, people say, oh, it's really just supply demand disruptions. It's always supply-demand disruptions that causes inflation. Right. Uh, it's always supply-demand disruptions. Um, and there is um, a school of thought that wants to fall back on Milton Friedman's uh, dictum that inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. The mistake is to think that means central bankers always get the inflation they want. No, that statement does not mean central bankers always get the inflation they want. There are all sorts of monetary phenomena that central bankers don't control. Mm -hmm. Bank lending, they have very imperfect controls over these. The velocity of money, uh, the labor market, there are all sorts of uh, monetary phenomenon. So we have to sort of put that aside and say, let's see how the Fed is done at predicting inflation. And the reality is they've done a terrible job for the last 15 or 20 years. For a decade, they told us QE is going to get inflation up to our 2% target, and it did not. Right. And for the last two years, they've told us we're doing massive QE, and don't worry, it won't create inflation. And we observe <laughs> higher inflation. Now, I, causation and correlation are two different things. Right, right. But I draw everyone's attention who wants to, to uh, former Governor Dan Tarullo, who stepped off the Fed in, 19, in 2017, appointed by Obama. The first speech she gave is on the Brookings Institution website, and it's called Monetary Policy Without a Working Theory of Inflation. His conclusion after serving on the board was the Fed doesn't have a theory of where inflation comes from. Hmm. That's a former governor in good, in good standing who worked yeah. with other governors. That was his conclusion. Kind of he wasn't a monetary policy expert, but he worked hard at it. So I'm, I'm a little anxious about the Fed telling me not to worry. We, we, we know inflation. And uh, so we sometimes shortened that to Frega, which nobody liked. And a friend of mine told me has an absolutely disgusting meaning in Italian. So we, <laughs> we try not to use it. And my apologies well, to anybody who speaks Italian. So if, um, 
but but the concept we we do need economic growth and i sometimes worry that people think you can either be fiscally responsible or advocate economic growth that in order to really have economic growth you can't worry about being fiscally responsible because that will hold back the economy and sometimes people who are just obsessed with the budget and fiscal responsibility might lose track of the fact that there are other things that you need to do to help promote economic growth are there um policies that you think we should be pursuing that would could help underlying economic growth not just kind of stimulus but i mean long-term economic growth things that would affect the inputs to, to economic growth that could be done uh, on a fiscally responsible basis? Um, well, yes, I, there was a brouhaha in the spring when former Secretary of the Treasury Larry Summers said how upset he was about uh, the administration's spending plans. Mm -hmm. um, and lost in that was, I thought, Larry Summers' rather careful statement that he could support a bigger infrastructure investment because that would be push that would be on things for which we got a long-term return. It would be expanding the economy's capacity. So it actually matters whether the federal government spends stuff on investment or whether it spends it on consumption. Now, what's really awkward for us all to confront is we both live in a country with huge inequality of wealth and income, and we live in a country whose government spending is overwhelmingly geared to support consumption rather than investment. Just it, the federal federal outlays are massively skewed toward support for consumption rather than investment, mm -hmm. and it's a hard thing to wean yourself from. And it's it's to it, I regret that uh, in the 1990s uh, there was a commission to say should we do capital budgeting. I, I wish the federal government had gone down the path of capital budgeting, and it's hard and it's painful to decide is this a capital item or is this an expense item, um, but it's worth it because we should be making investments in our country's long run future that, that expand productive capacity. And it's an, it's an important role for the federal government. And we've been doing it since Abraham Lincoln was a congressman, right? That was the Whig program was internal improvements, um, expanding the productive potential of our economy. And we should try to find a way to wean the federal government off of support for consumption. Um, and healthcare is just, a support for consumption. Now we want people to have good health care. So we have this dilemma. And one of the things I've learned after eight years of teaching is I have to get my students to understand that the important things are dilemmas and you have to work them through. Yes, we live in a country with huge inequality of wealth and income and we, the federal fisc is not unlimited. We ought to be skewing it toward investment rather than consumption. And we got to find a way through that. And it would be wonderful if the political class could just confront those dilemmas and those choices and frame them. Now, let's, let's see how much we can move over to the investment column, the internal improvements column. Um, but I, uh, you know that, Bob, and, and, uh, and I know the Concord Coalition knows that, but it's, it's getting lost on our political class. Well, part of you know, an interesting debate that's been going on this year is, is the definition of investment and so things that are infrastructure comes up in the infrastructure debate what we have described as infrastructure before we would all have thought of traditionally as physical things the roads and bridges and tunnels and things that people always talk about and the concept has been raised of um 
treating long-term health care as infrastructure or child care as infrastructure, things that we have thought of before as transfer programs, that's, a, that's, a, um, that's one of those dilemmas, I think, that you talk about is... Well, I'd be tougher. Uh, I mean, I agree with you. I, I agree with you. There's some definitional problems. But I think that um, if you build something that's truly a long-lived asset, it's okay to borrow money and think about that accreting back to you over a 50-year horizon. Um, but if we're consuming something right now, it may be important to support this, let's say healthcare, but that doesn't mean we should support it with debt finance. Let's support it out of current income of society because it's the current, current generation that's consuming that healthcare. I'm happy to have the federal government support more healthcare for poor Americans. There are all sorts of good outcomes that come from that. We're gonna have more productive teenagers and adults if they don't have health problems in their childhood or they have better childhood nutrition. But let's tax ourselves to do that. Let's not pretend that it's equally appropriate to debt finance that, even though it's a good thing. Not all good things should be debt financed. Back to the balance sheet mismatch <laughs> the federal government's running. I think the problem there, obviously, is we've got a Republican Party that has said no new taxes anyway, any day. And now we've got Democrats that say, well, no taxes for anybody who earns less than $400,000. I mean, we're pretty soon we've got both. I mean, you can see where this is the, you know, the race to the bottom here. Uh, pretty much, you know, no new taxes for anything. I, I've got an assignment for the Concord Coalition for you on your next project. Okay. All right, Professor. Every member of Congress who has signed the no new taxes pledge to have their voting record scrutinized as to how many times they voted for spending increases since they signed the pledge. And I'm going to call that the hypocrisy index. <laughs> With that, uh, that leads me to another subject that we'll get to after the break. He, he, hypocrisy and the debt limit go hand in hand. And uh, we'll talk about that on, on the other side. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Peter Fisher of the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. And we're talking about federal finances, hypocrisy, and a lot of other interesting things. Uh, we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. I'm joined by Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman, and Peter Fisher of the Tech School of Business at Dartmouth. Uh, we were talking about hypocrisy and the debt limit before we uh, went for our last break, but I wanted, and we will talk about that, but I wanted to get back to another question about monetary policy, because we talked about uh, quantitative easing and, and its effects on the economy. And it kind of begs the question of when should the Fed begin to tighten? Peter, did you have some thoughts about that? When and how? Yeah, I, I think looking back 15 years, looking back two years, um, we see it's always important in a financial crisis, asset prices falling for the central bank to liquefy the markets and try to avert a continued fall in prices. That's, 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 that's an important tool of monetary policy. Um, what we have is very little evidence that after the immediate shock of a crisis and a stabilization, that simply pumping up the quantity of money and having the Fed buy a lot of assets and drive prices higher um, will actually have much impact on GDP uh, and stimulate the economy. And the evidence isn't really there. 
the Fed kind of claims the evidence is there, but the serious economists who've looked into it who try to tease these things out and find causal channels have a really hard time finding an impact in the long run from doing this year after year after year. I think the same thing happened from March of 2020, the immediate pandemic, crisis in financial markets, the Fed comes to the rescue, pumps a lot of money into the system. But after three or four months, the Fed should have weaned itself off of quantitative easing, should have stopped buying all these assets um, and let markets find prices uh, for themselves and not stop driving house prices higher and higher and higher by buying mortgages, more mortgages. So we've returned house prices back to the level they were in 2006 and above. And I didn't know that was one of the goals of monetary policy, ever higher house prices. <laughs> I just think it's, it's absurd. But the, the harder question the Fed hasn't answered for the last two years is, so why 120 or 130 billion a month? Who cares? Why not 330? Why not zero? Why not 30? Where'd this number come from? And as, uh, as one wise friend of mine said, it's like back in March of 2020, they decided to drive at 90 miles an hour. <laughs> and they're still driving 90 miles an hour. And you ask them why? And they say, well, it seemed like a good idea back in March of 2020. And it's like, no, that's not good enough. You're supposed to have a better explanation than that. Right. So it's already late for the Fed to weed itself off of quantitative easing. And as I mentioned earlier in the program, I think they're kind of whistling past the grave on leaving interest rates alone because they're holding them constant while inflation's rising, which is lowering real interest rates, which is stimulating the economy more. So telling me, well, it's going to take us a long time to slow down quantitative easing and we couldn't possibly raise interest rates until we're done with this. Well, wow, that monetary stimulus is coursing through the system. And I don't know why you think inflation is going to abate. So I think it's past time. Uh, and I think the Fed... Um, uh, is kind of been kidding itself and just timid. And they don't really explain why they've been doing what they're doing. Now, the really, if you want to really lose some sleep, go back and read a little history about John Law and the Mississippi Company in the late 1600s and early 1700s in France, pumping up the quantity of money in the French economy and uh, then blowing the place up. And um, it's the original financial bubble um, much more so than uh, the South Sea Company in, in the United Kingdom uh, about 10 years later. Um, and I challenge anyone curious, you can send me emails to my Dartmouth website. Tell me what the Fed is doing that's different than what the Scotsman John Law did in France, creating one of the historic financial bubbles of all time. I can't figure out a difference. Mm -hmm. And the Fed's, you know, going to have to sort this out. And I don't think it's going to work this time for them to say, oh, it's all a fault of bank supervision. <laughs> you know, we, 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 yeah, no, we didn't pump up the asset prices. Of course they did. Well, and asset prices are falling and the financial system's in a bad way and house prices are coming down. And it's not us. It's those lazy bank supervisors. I'm, I'm, let's, well, we talked about hypocrisy in Congress earlier. Let's, let's call that out at the Fed this mm -hmm. time. Anyway, so I, Bob, as you see, I'm I'm a timid person who doesn't express their opinion. <laughs> well, I can. Uh, I, I I don't want to. I mean, is it a political thing? They're just af afraid that there would be such blowback from uh, Wall Street that they're. No, I don't. Is, I don't does that cause hesitancy? I think they've painted themselves in a corner. I think it's really hard, and it's hard to see their blind spots. And they've painted themselves in a corner, and it's hard to find a way out. I don't think it's anything. I don't. I don't think they're. They're trying hard, 
I think it's a lot of blind spots that they've developed. Um, I don't think it's political uh, in, a, in a narrow partisan way. Um, it's, it's, it's a lack of looking over the horizon. Well, uh, speaking of blind spots, um, Tori, you're 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 watching what's the what's playing out on the hill with regard to the debt limit and getting increasingly alarmed. I think. I've... Yeah, I I just I think Republicans are incredibly dug in on their uh, lack of desire to assist in any way in in addressing the debt limit, whether it's raising the debt limit or suspending the debt limit, and I I think that Democrats are insistent that they're not going to do it you know, unilaterally through reconciliation, because of course that means revisiting the the, the budget resolution and, and to do that. Um, so yeah, I, I just, I, we have to raise the debt limit, but I see absolutely no way to, to raise the debt limit. So yeah, I'm absolutely concerned. <laughs> well, Peter, you, you uh, were through many, many, many debt limit fights, uh, your time at the Fed and at the treasury. What, what are any, any observations about what's going on now? Uh, it's the politics here has this has a certain rhythm to it. One can recognize if you've got enough scar tissue from these events. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, I it's it's kind of a tragedy of American democracy again. Our constitution gives Congress all of the levers of fiscal policy, spending, taxes, and borrowing. It's all given to Congress. They only delegate the borrowing authority to the Treasury. And it's kind of embarrassing. Congress decides how much taxes to collect and how much revenues to spend. And they delegate to the treasury borrowing within a limit. I understand the purpose of a limit. And then they say they're shocked to discover we've run up to the limit. I mean, but we really have to understand that in our democracy, Congress is the finance ministry. And it's a little embarrassing for an administration to ever admit that, that Congress has all the levers Mm -hmm. and it's always mother may I. It was a really interesting insight into democracy. We didn't want to let the king go through the back door and borrow a lot of money to have wars. So we gave the parliament the power to both borrow and tax, and it's all there. Didn't want to go through that. But now, if Congress is not responsible, there's no, there's no recourse. Right. There's no one else to clean up the mess if Congress doesn't want to be responsible. Mm-hmm. And so um, a little like the hypocrisy index I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, every time you vote for a spending increase, you, you should accumulate a sort of checklist of why you need to vote for a debt increase, debt limit increase. Or a tax cut. <laughs> or, or, a ta- or, or to tax increase taxes or something. Um, and it's interesting, Congress, when I left the Treasury in 2003, the first speech I gave was saying how to reform the debt ceiling, which is to n- never specify it by amount, only specify it by time and give every Congress one bite at the apple. Have them enact a two-year budget and have them have to enact a debt ceiling increase measured in time. Treasury can borrow whatever it takes to finance this budget. Mm -hmm. And then the Congress will get to vote on the next Congress. They'll have one vote on it. Do it like we do ag bills, you know, and and other big, big things. Mm -hmm. And then, and, and Congress has kind of backed into adopting my approach, but they have a hybrid. So when they don't want to face it, they measure it in time. And then when they want to go back to their monkey business of irresponsibility and hypocrisy, they go back to measuring it in quantity. And it's just, it's pathetic. Um, uh, but there you have it. I understand the partisan impulse, but it's, it's irresponsible. 
and there's not much more to say about it than that. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, it is, and it, it 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 always seemed to me that it was kind of a dance, and now I worry that it's a, uh, a, a the, the people are actually seriously contemplating that maybe we could default and uh, deal with it uh, by choosing which bills to pay and which bills not to pay, and that that's what gets me worried is people actually legislating legislatingly planning for a default and how you would deal with it. And, you know, to me, a default is a default. It's like, well, we're not going to worry about it because we're going to declare chapter 11 and, and nobody will uh, think that that damages the U S credit worthiness in any way. Um, So I worry about them backing into it. This is how democracies fall apart. When the people we elect and we expect them to take democracy seriously, stop taking it seriously. And, and I, um, I, I understand the impulse of, um, well, I just, uh, uh, Congress has got to be serious and, 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 um, and take its responsibilities. But when they start playing games with stuff like this, that's how democracies fall apart. Well, I, and I also to, think uh, there's some, I was just going to say, I think there's some sure. responsibility on behalf of the voters as well. I mean, I think voters need to give lawmakers the, the, the bandwidth to explain why they need to make tough choices. And I also think uh, voters need when when you know when somebody promises a free lunch, you know voters need to be able to sniff that out and 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 get to the root of, of the problem. So yeah, I I think our lawmakers are doing us a disservice, but I think voters need to stand up and be more responsible and civic minded and civically engaged as well. Yeah, yeah we don't we we don't have the privilege of sticking our heads in the sand and pretending um, that this stuff isn't happening. We, there's a duty of democracy to be informed about what's going on also. And that's what you get on Facing the Future. <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to have to wrap it up there. Uh, Peter Fisher of the Tech School of Business has been our guest this week. I've been talking with, uh, with, with uh, Tori Gorman uh, and, uh, and Dr. Fisher about the economy and monetary policy and the debt limit. Um, Peter, thank you very, very much for your insights this morning. Uh, And uh, thank you to the audience for listening. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. 